Let's pray for a moment. God, our Father, we thank you for the opportunity for us to gather here today in the joy of knowing that Jesus has risen, in the power of knowing that sin has been defeated and that your spirit is at work in the hearts of men and women today who are alive in Christ. Thank you for the hope that comes as we stand in your grace and as we stand in your power. Thank you that we get to proclaim not something that's just an an ancient uh, fact of history, but we get to proclaim the very truth that has changed the way that we live and the way that we look at life. Thank you that we get to celebrate the hope that we have for life beyond death, even in the midst of this world. For in Christ, you have conquered all that holds us back, and you have given us a new kind of life, a life that leads into eternity, a life that goes beyond every difficulty that this world can throw at us. Thank you for sending the very best that you had in your very own Son. Thank you for the love of Jesus Christ that fills our hearts and that spills over to other people. I pray this morning that you would renew our confidence in Jesus, that you'll restore our vision for his mission to the world, and we also pray that you will capture the hearts of people who have thus far been sitting on the fence or been filled with doubts or or where they just haven't been sure. And as they open up their hearts to you, I pray that you will fill every aspect of, of how they look at life and the future. Fill them with hope, fill them with peace and joy and grace. And Lord, I, I ask that as we celebrate you, that you will continue to wrap us up in your arms and give us great strength. So Lord, we ask that you will bless everyone who has come here this morning and those who are watching online. I also think of those who are unable to come because they're sick or they're shut in or they're battling a disease. And we ask that that you would walk with each and every one of them, that they would know your strong arms of comfort and that you would be their great source of hope on this day. Thank you that Jesus is risen. It's in his name that we pray. Amen. All right, let's practice the old ritual that church has been doing for a couple of thousand years. When I say he is risen, you're going to respond by saying he is risen indeed. Ready? He is risen. More than 20 years ago, I attended a global leadership summit in Chicago, and this particular leadership summit fell in the middle of our family vacation that we were taking with my wife's family up in northern Minnesota at a cabin on a lake where we used to spend a few weeks every summer. To get back to my family, I took a flight from Chicago to Minneapolis and then got on a 16-passenger plane from Minneapolis to the lakes region near Brainerd, Minnesota. There were only about eight or ten people on this short flight, so the pilot left the partition to the cockpit open. And what that did was it gave me an amazing ability to look through the front windshield of the plane for this entire ride and to gain a different perspective, a different view of northern Minnesota. I knew for the first time why they call it the the land of 10,000 lakes because that's exactly what I saw through that plane's windshield. Perhaps you've heard someone use the figure of speech about looking from a 30,000-foot view. 
That figure of speech comes from the view taken from a commercial plane at its cruising altitude. This concept is often employed in strategy meetings. It builds on the observation that there are times when it is helpful to see the bigger, larger picture and avoid getting lost in the smaller details. The 30,000 foot view is helpful because you can gain a wider perspective from that vantage point. It's not at all like the rush of information that screams at you when you jump out of a plane while skydiving. I've done that too. In that case, you're falling through the atmosphere so fast that even while the view is spectacular and even breathtaking, it is also changing so rapidly as each second, each second ticks by that the 30,000 view from the safety of a seat inside a plane allows you far more room for reflection and analysis. You might be thinking by now, what does this have to do with Easter? Well, I brought this up this morning because we are going to take a look at a section of the Bible that invites us to take a 30,000 foot view of the impact of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. On several Easter Sundays in past years, we have looked at the specific testimonies and circumstantial evidence for the resurrection. And all of that information is highly, highly valuable. But taking the 30,000 foot view allows us to look at how the resurrection impacted the faith of early Christians and how it impacts us today. So welcome to Easter Sunday here at North River Church. I am so glad that you are here today or that you are watching with us today. We are calling this Holy Week series, The Cross and the Crown. On Palm Sunday, we noted how Jesus rode into Jerusalem on a borrowed donkey, literally saddled with the message of the cross. He did not ride in as a conquering hero or as a mighty general. He rode in as the humble king of a different kind of kingdom. Then on Good Friday, we looked at how Pontius Pilate, the Roman governor of Judea, stubbornly established in history that Jesus died as a king, and an unusual king at that, a king who suffered and died for his servants, enabling them to live a life that they had never lived before. And now today, we are going to see how Philippians 2, 5 through 11 offers us a 30,000 foot view that allows us to see with a fresh perspective how the resurrection of Jesus led to his exaltation as the King of kings and Lord of lords forevermore. So the question is, what does the 30,000 foot view allow us to discover about Jesus? I'd like to walk you through three observations from this 30,000 foot view. First, Jesus always had it. I'm not talking about the 30,000 view here. I'm talking about equality with God, which is part of the subject matter that Paul writes about here in Philippians 2. Jesus always had it. He writes in verse 6, who being in very nature God did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. What a powerful statement. Seeing from this vantage point allows us to see what Jesus' critics could not see. The Pharisees and the religious leaders kept asking, who is this man? They were not sure where Jesus had come from and they questioned his authority. Here the Apostle Paul lets us know that from the beginning, Jesus shared equality with God. That's a significant detail. It means that it wasn't because of something that he did in life that he was all of a sudden graced with this extra ability. Paul is making the case that from the beginning, from the beginning of time, from the beginning of all beginnings, Jesus shared equality with God. Paul adds three important modifying descriptions to that word equality. 
First, he says, he was in very nature God. That means that at the core of his being, in his essential, undeniable essence, he was divine. He was God. He was not just a little bit like God. This was something that he never lost and he never gave up. Second, he shared equality with God. This wasn't something granted to him by the declaration of a theological synod. Equality meant that he wasn't just God-like, he was God. At the core of his being, if you could look inside, if you could cut him open, you would find that every part of him was God. And third, he didn't use this equality to his own advantage. Equality in nature didn't guarantee him fair treatment by the people of this world. In taking the assignment to infiltrate mankind, he didn't demand recognition or status. He didn't insist on first-class seating or five-star hotels. And that wasn't available in Bethlehem anyway. How did Paul put all this together and come to these conclusions that he writes about here in Philippians chapter 2? First, he understood the language of Genesis 1. Genesis 1.26 uses these incredible personal pronouns where God says, let us make man in our image. Genesis 1 dropped a clue about the complexity within the unity of who God is. So there is God the, the creator that we meet in verse 1 of Genesis. And then there's the spirit of God that is hovering over the waters that we meet in verse 2 of Genesis 1. And then in verse 3, it says that, uh, that the, the light of the world had come and God said, let there be light and there was light. John's gospel reinterprets that for us when John tells us that he was in the world and the, made, and the world was made by him and he was the light of the world. John is telling us that Jesus was the agent of God the Father in the creative process from the very beginning. So we're only three verses into the most ancient texts of the Bible and we see God the Creator, God the Spirit, and God the Son as the light of the world. And then we find those, these pronouns about us let us make man in our image. Second, Paul considered the claims of the gospel. The word gospel literally means good news. God's good news was that he sent his very own son into the world to redeem people. To redeem means to buy back and rescue people from slavery to all forms of sin addiction. John's gospel adds that Jesus was the light of the world, that he was with God in the beginning, that he was God in the beginning, and that through him all things that have been made were made. And third, Paul had an encounter with the risen Jesus. Paul had been a Pharisee and a religious bounty hunter bent on arresting Christians. He thought that he could stamp out Christianity in one generation. Oh, how many people have tried to do that since the days of Paul, and they all fail. It's amazing how resilient our faith is. And then Jesus appeared to him in a blinding light on his way to Damascus to round up more Christians. Paul recognized that voice as the voice of the Lord, and on that day he became a servant of the gospel, never wavering despite all the persecution that he took on. You see, we think we're in charge, and then Jesus reveals that he has been in control all along. That's what Paul discovered. That's part of what we talked about on Friday night that Pilate discovered as well. So by the time Paul wrote this letter to the Philippian church, he knew that Jesus had equality with God from the very beginning, from the start. 
Jesus always had it. The second thing we discover from this 30,000 foot view is that despite his equality, Jesus was a sacrificial leader. So verses 7 and 8 ring out to us this way. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a human being, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Many types of leaders have come and gone in this world. Some demand privilege and look down on people from their lofty status. Some display ruthless disregard for their subjects. Some use their position to pad their accounts in, per, in pursuit of wealth and fame. But from the outset, we learn that Jesus did not consider equality with God something that would hold him back from entering this world and entering our human race as a lowly servant. So Jesus, who had existed from eternity, allowed himself to be born as a human being. The one who was never made, but who always existed, allowed himself to be made in that moment. And now the one who was in very nature God took on the very nature of a servant. Jesus' love for human beings was so great that he associated with those of low estate. This is the epitome of humility. We see this humility as Jesus welcomes children, touches the sick, accepts the hospitality of those who had been rejected, and as he worked for years in obscurity. Yet his divine nature was frequently on display despite his human appearance as he gave sight to the blind, restored hearing to the deaf, healed the wounds of lepers, fed crowds from a boy's lunch, turned water into wine, and raised Lazarus from the dead. Business leader Jim Collins coined the concept that's known as being a level five leader. A level five leader is someone with a paradoxical blend of professional will and personal humility in ways that lifts up others and that puts the goals of the mission first. It took the business community 2,000 years to discover and embrace that concept. And nobody has done that better than Jesus who having equality with God, nonetheless humbled himself. Jesus was a level five leader before anyone understood what a level five leader was. And he was the greatest level five leader of all time. Third, his equality with God endured the cross and shines in his exaltation. So the final three verses of this section read this way. And being found in appearance as a human being, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Today, my friend Luke Frazier wrote, we celebrate the day death lost its sing, and the world found its king. How was Jesus obedient? First, by accepting and embracing his mission. Second, by completing his assignment all the way to the point of dying for his servants. By enduring the horrendous suffering that led to death on a cross, through his death on the cross, he made atonement possible for the sins of the entire world. 
All that was waiting was the application of that atonement that comes when you and I place our personal faith in Jesus Christ. There is a transaction that takes place at that moment where God takes our trust and in place of that, he gives us the righteousness of Jesus Christ. It's why faith is so important because the potential is there for everyone but it is not accessed until you and I take personal responsibility of responding to God with our own faith and trust, saying, God, I receive Jesus as your provision to deal with my sin. Second question is, how has Jesus been exalted? The word exalt means to lift up. First, God exalted Jesus when he raised him up from death in that tomb. This is the great celebration of Easter Sunday. Baptist theologian Russell Moore was quoted on Friday in the New York Times saying, the resurrection is not the overturning of the cross as though crucifixion were defeat and resurrection a contradiction of that defeat. The cross and the resurrection were part of one act of love and mission and redemption. We discover this on Easter Sunday morning that the the cross isn't something that's antithetical to the resurrection. They are tied together forevermore. On the day when Jesus died on that cross, sins were paid for. But on the morning when he rose, it showed that he had defeated death once and for all. And with it, he had defeated the power of sin in our lives. This is why we can have great hope. That we can live for God and that we can live with freedom here in this world. And that we can live with grace in our hearts rather than guilt that holds us back. So God exalted Jesus when he raised him from death in that tomb on that morning. Second, God exalted Jesus when he ascended to heaven and took his place at the right hand of the Father. At the right hand of God the Father, Jesus sits in the seat of authority and majesty. From his exalted position, Jesus reigns now over the kingdom of God and his people. And he intercedes with the Father by praying for you and for praying for me now. No matter what struggle you go through, no matter how dark your individual days may be, you need to know one thing, that if your faith is in Jesus, He is praying for you, and He is fighting for you in the the seat right next to God the Father. That's how much He is for you today. And the third stage of His exaltation is yet to come. Part of the great news of Easter is that the King is coming again. One day, Paul sees this vision off in the future. Every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Many of the historians looking back at this passage think that verses 6 through 11 may have formed an early hymn of the ancient church. It's why in most of our Bibles it's set off as if it's written like poetry. Long before people argued about Catholic or Protestant views of theology, this ancient stanza summed up the life and impact of Jesus Christ for the earliest Christians. You think singing is powerful on an Easter Sunday? Just imagine standing among millions and millions of people singing these ancient lyrics when Jesus returns along with the earliest Christians who knew these words before the Bible was even penned. Wow. I want to be there. I want you to be there. The third question that comes from the end of this passage is, what is the name that is above every name? Paul answers that for us in verse 11. That Jesus Christ is Lord. That's the name that is above every name. He is Lord. 
This is the apostle's conclusion. Because he had equality with God from the beginning, because of his extraordinary life and great humility, because of his obedient death on the cross and resurrection by the power of God, Jesus Christ is Lord. He is the Lord to be trusted with the plans and pains of your life. He is the Lord who identifies with even the lowliest of us in his humility. He is the Lord who conquers our addiction to sin. He is the Lord who overcomes death. He is the Lord who is able to transform us into children of God, becoming more like Jesus. He is the Lord who sits today at the right hand of God. He is the Lord who is coming one day to bring heaven to earth and to reign forever. Jesus Christ is Lord. And he calls us to openly bow the knee and confess that he is Lord, leading to a life that has lived under his direction and leadership. Here's the main idea that I'm trying to get across this morning. The resurrection is proof of Jesus' equality with God. He always had it. He refused to abuse it. It endured the cross, and we see it in his exaltation as Lord. One day, every knee will bow, and every person will confess Jesus as Lord. The question for today is, have you received Jesus as Lord of your life? Or are you still trying to be in charge and fit Jesus in somewhere a little bit with whatever space that you will grudgingly grant him? He wants to be Lord of your life and he wants to take charge of your life so that your life will be lived to the fullest and achieve the design that God had for you when he originally created you. If the Spirit of God is moving in your heart, to respond with that kind of faith and to get off the fence and step forward into it, I'd like you to pray a simple prayer with me. Just repeat these words after me. Jesus, today I, bound my, I bow my knee and I bow my heart before you and I confess that you are Lord. Redeem me, save me, and give me life in all its fullness. I place my faith in you, and I will follow you. In Jesus' name, amen. I have good news for you this morning. If today's the first time that you prayed a prayer like that, opening up your mind and your heart to Jesus, realizing that he is Lord, and that's what is proclaimed by his resurrection and his exaltation to his place beside God the Father, and that he is returning one day that you belong to him forevermore and he belongs to you and he will begin to shape your life the more you lean into your faith the more you grow in knowledge of the word of God the more you worship and fellowship with other Christians and he will begin to build this hope within you in such a way that it will overcome every obstacle that you face in life and even though you may die you will die with the hope of Jesus on your lips and in your heart until you see him face to face. And that's why we celebrate today. God, our Father, I ask that your blessing will fall on all who have come here today and who've worshiped with us, all who are watching or listening, wherever they are. And I pray that you will fill us not just with the trivia that this is the day that we remember that Jesus rose, but that you will fill us with the very Lord who lives today by your Holy Spirit and that you will take up residence and presence in our lives 
and that your hope will radiate from us to other people so that we can give away the good news that we treasure so greatly on a day like today. And I ask that your peace and the joy of Jesus' resurrection will go with us this day wherever we go. I ask this in the mighty name of Jesus Christ, who is Lord. Amen. I am so glad that you chose to be with us here today. Thank you for celebrating with us that Jesus is risen.